when you're foreshadowing something, you want to have it earlier in the story and you also want it to be organic. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, we have this, we have an awesome topic for today. I'm really excited to get into it because it's something that I'm working with now myself, something that you're helping me with, and it's something that I know is going to be really interesting to listeners but I'm not going to tell you what it is right now, which might be sort of a hint about what the topic is. Now, before we get to that topic, we are recording this on May 3rd. We talked last week, and you are already making plans to go to Thriller Fest again this year. I am. It was not so I, – I didn't think I was going to go. I know I'm not going to BoucherCon unless something happens to change that. But then I realized that I needed to go – to talk to people in the industry and and um, get some FaceTime in. And I figured, you know, if Thriller Fest is coming up anyway, I should probably just do it both at the same time, kill two birds with one stone. And Thriller Fest this year, it's always in New York City. It's always at the, is it the Grand Hyatt? Is that what it's called? The Grand Hyatt. So far, every time I've attended, that's where it's okay. been. Okay, and it is it is there again this year, and the dates yes. are the 11th to the 17th, but the first couple of days are normally like through the week, and they've got these in-depth sessions. Um, so you'll probably be rolling in like Thursday, Friday. Something like that. Yeah, I haven't booked my tickets yet. Um, Thriller Fest is really more than just Thriller Fest. It has Craft Fest and Agent Fest and all these different uh, segmented parts to it. So those who are looking for classes on writing go for Craft Fest. Those who are looking to pick, pitch their books to agents would go to Agent Fest. And um, I, I don't think I'm actually going to be officially attending this year because I have so many other things to do. But because I'll be in the hotel, I'll still be at the bar. I'll still be bumping into people. I'll still be accessible and, um, you know, hanging out with my friends and any fans and readers who want to show up. I haven't organized anything yet. But if I hear from somebody who says, hey, I'm in town, then we'll make something happen. Well, and there's plenty of time to do that because we're like six weeks away right now. You mentioned um, FaceTime. Why is that important? Well, so much of publishing is, um, how do I put this? Like, it's all very clustered. Most of it's in New York. I mean, there are very good, successful agents who do not live in New York. In fact, there's one in Dallas that, I, that I'm familiar with who has some fantastic authors under his belt. But um, for the most part, everything is in New York. And when everything is done by the phone or by email, it's just different than actually meeting someone in real life and making that connection. And when you visit and you're able to not only speak with your editor face to face, but you can meet other people within the publishing house, the sales team, the marketing team. And when there's a real live human connection there, these are people who are going to be working on your behalf or who have worked on your behalf and maybe haven't met you, who maybe who've loved your work and would love to meet you just because they love your work. And so it's just an opportunity to have that human 
connection, put a face to the name, put mannerisms to the tone and all of that. And it just makes it more real and bonded, I guess you could say, than email and phone all the time. And and you meet you would meet people that you normally wouldn't come in contact with through email or phone. Okay, my clever intro into the show today by not telling you, by telling you we had an interesting show and not telling you what it was, I was clumsily using a foreshadowing technique. And we're going to be talking about foreshadowing today. Uh, it, it's something that's I have done in my own work where I'll put things in that are clearly foreshadowing things, and then I will forget <laughs> to deliver on the back end. And I, I think this is probably, if I'm having the problem, it's probably a problem we're all having or probably an issue that we're all having. And so let, let's talk about it. Just it, let's get started with what, what is foreshadowing, aside from my lame attempt at uh, an example. <laughs> foreshadowing is kind of like, well, it's, it's telling of things to come in, in the, the most literal sense. And it's a way to guide the story ahead of time, especially if there's going to be a twist or if there's something coming down the road that might be out of character. Or you're, you're setting the reader's expectations by hinting. And um, when, I, when I think about it and I'm trying to find some non-authory, non-writing world similarity, it's almost a little bit like hypnosis or mental manipulation because you're getting people like you've seen mad magicians who will you know rub rub ashes on their arms and the name will appear and all of a sudden it'll be the name of the person who's they're talking to and they never have any idea that they've ever met and you know that there's been some action in the background that led up to that and what the foreshadowing in a story is, is all the action in the background that led up to the big reveal in a sense that you're doing a mental mind game, not in a bad way, but you're, you're getting people's minds ready for something that's about to happen. So that's, the, that's like the first real world thing that popped into my head. I don't know that it's actually the best one. Well, what what is I'm not going to ask you for an example, but what's what's the right way to do this? When do we want to use foreshadowing and what's the right way to use it when we we do decide to use it? I think as with so many things that have to do with storytelling, there is no right way, no specific wrong way it does it work. And you when you're foreshadowing something, you want to have it earlier in the story and you also want it to be organic so that it's not like it just jumps out and I remember a long time ago when um I one of the books that I read on writing when I was very very at the beginning of this whole journey um and I can't I'm, I'm struggling I'm trying to figure out what book it was I just I just can't remember but there was they were talking about a movie or a book in which the man of the house had taken a shotgun and placed it on the mantle. And you get to the end of the book and nothing had ever happened with that shotgun. And it became sort of a bone of contention. Like, what about the shotgun? 
Well, that shotgun of him placing it on the mantle is something that could be used as, is typically used as foreshadowing. Like if if the the author knows that way down later in the story there's going to be a gunfight or something, that is the wrong time to explain where Johnny got his gun. <laughs> so you put that up on the mantle in in a um, an organic part of the story. Guy walks into the room carrying a shotgun. He'd just come in from hunting or whatever, sets it up on the mantle. So what you've just told the reader way in advance is this is someone who has a gun and that's where the gun is. So when the gunfight starts or whatever, and I'm totally just making this up, has nothing to do with what I read in that book that was talking about foreshadowing. Um, when he reaches for the gun, you don't have to stop the story and explain, oh, and there was a gun on the mantle. And that's like jarring. And, and it takes the, the readers like, wait, nobody ever told me there was a gun in this story. So foreshadowing is sort of setting it up, setting the stage for what's to come. Little You do it with character development. You do it with objects. You do it with motivation so that when the time comes that that thing is used, of course, it makes perfect sense. And there's no other thing that the, the character would do, no other object that the character would have grabbed for because this thing already exists in the story world. And that's what foreshadowing is. And is this something, and I know the answer is going to be it's different for different people, but in general, if you are writing your own story, is this something that you have planned in advance or when you're going through um, doing a polishing draft or a, a, a layer where you're just adding more information, you go, oh, I really need to foreshadow that a few chapters ahead of time? I think it's both because, at least for me, it's both because with my outlines, I already have an idea of what's going to happen in the story plot-wise. But a lot of the character development, the depth, the, the choices that people make, why they make those choices, that's all sort of developed as the story is growing. And so there will be things that I know are coming down the line or things that are – because these characters, I've written them in – in a series, I'm familiar enough with them to know how they will behave mm -hmm. coming down the line that I will want to have – I'll already have it in the, the, in the drafts as I'm writing it because I know it's coming. But then there will be those surprises that how the characters interact, and I'll have to go back and make sure that the reader's not surprised by some decision that's made and insert it. So, yeah, both. Is it foreshadowing – um, where you throw in something that's going to tie in to the solution to the problem in the book. Uh, and one of those things that, you know, might just be a very minor thing that, that the narrator of the story might just gloss over in chapter three that then plays a, a, a major role in the solution to the problem. Is that foreshadowing or is that something else? I would say it falls under the label of foreshadowing. It's it's a way to make things make sense. And it's like if Johnny's in a neighborhood and he's looking for clues and then he walks up to a door and the woman opens the door and it's his grandmother, how convenient and contrived that grandmother just happened to live in the neighborhood that Johnny was in. But if the reader knows in advance several chapters back that Johnny's thinking 
thinking of this neighborhood and, you know, it would, that's where his grandmother lived. And he's worried about his grandmother, hoping that this thing that he's investigating isn't going to affect her. And then he's in that neighborhood and he steps, he knocks on the door and grandmother answers. Well, of course, that makes sense now. Mm -hmm. That's foreshadowing. So whether it is something big that actually answers this, the, the, the questions or the problems of the story that, that connects from the beginning to the end, whether it's that or whether it's just leading up to something that might otherwise seem out of place, it all falls under that umbrella as you're setting the reader's expectations of what's to come. I'm, I'm reading this series of books that I'm finding incredibly enjoyable. They're funny. Uh, the stories are good, and I love the characters. And in the third or fourth book in the series, I, I was reading along, and I, I come out of the story occasionally as a reader now because of all the things that we talk about going, oh, how interesting that the author has chosen to do this. And in this case, the author had chosen to add conflict to multiple scenes with a refrigerator. Okay. And I just thought, that is awesome the way that she's done that, because these scenes w would be kind of flat. You know, there are other things going on, but they'd be kind of flat without this horrific refrigerator. And I was so shocked when the refrigerator played a part in the solution to the problem at the end of the story. And I just thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> That's an awesome use of foreshadowing. So now, knowing what we know, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine that that refrigerator was not brought up anywhere else in the story until the final scene. Would it have still been clever? No. Then it would have seemed contrived. It would have felt like she put that in in the third chapter or the second chapter, wherever it came in, just to set it up for the ending. Right. So, ah, good point. For for some forms of foreshadowing, um, it takes more than just one hint, and so the readers will know that there's something coming, and then they're reminded of it in a different way a little bit later. You can overdo it too. I I've been accused of it, where they're like, "Okay, we get it, we get it. Something's coming already," and you know, just stop rubbing our noses in it. So it can be overdone as well. And that's part of the craft is finding that balance, finding that touch. And really, when you're writing a story, everything is about engaging the reader, making this interesting, making them want to keep turning the pages, making them want to understand what happened, whether it's to the character or whether it's a mystery or whatever. That's your goal as a storyteller is make it interesting, make it captivating. And so if that's the job of foreshadowing is dropping those hints, those clues along the way, so that when the thing happens, it it's even more interesting. It's it, it it's part of the experience. It en enriches the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if the foreshadowing is not going to enrich the experience or it makes it annoying, then it's too much or unnecessary. Uh, and if the experience could be better enriched with more clues or more hints or more references along the way, then that would be the way to do it. And I can, I can give uh, just off the top of my head, another example that I'm just making up from scratch. Let's say that there's a character who in two thirds of the way through the book 
is going to get into a battle of wits with someone in pop culture references. Like they, they banter and this really witty banter, pop culture references, right? Uh, if that, if nothing has ever come up in the book before this, that the character has a fascination with anything pop culture, Star Wars, um, Marvel Comics, whatever it is, uh, music, if nothing has ever been referenced up to that point, no clues have been dropped in that the character enjoys these things. He's never had any throwaway lines, none of that. When he gets into this witty banter with this, his antagonist, whatever, near the end of the story, and it doesn't have to be the conclusion, it's just a big scene or something that's impactful, then the banter is meaningless because why did he why did he know all these powers? There's no connection. There's there's nothing that makes it go, oh yeah, I saw that coming. So foreshadowing can be used, should be used in, in so many different ways to enrich the texture of what's coming down the road. And if it's done in a clumsy fashion, and I know that we've all read books like this where you're just reading along and, and something pops out at you and, go, and you go, oh, <laughs> all right, that's going to play into the solution. And then you go back to reading and then 200 pages later it does. Um, it, it, it not only takes you out of the story, but it disappoints you at the end when it really does play into it because you don't feel clever for having figured it out. It's, it's just so obvious that – you just feel disappointed that the author didn't put more effort into it. Or it could be that shotgun on the mantle that yes. never shows up, and you also feel disappointed. So it's, it's, it's one of those very much it-depends type situations. It's all about craft. It, it, it's how skilled is the storyteller in manipulating these different elements. Um, it's really hard for me to think of how a story could work without any foreshadowing because everybody in the story has a point. If it's a one single point of view story or multi-character, everybody knows something. Everybody's seeing something. And there's always something at the beginning that is going to affect the end. And it seems to me in writing a story that even if you don't know anything about foreshadowing as a technique, to write a captivating story, there's still going to be foreshadowing in there because everything affects something. I gave an example when we started this, not a specific example, but something that I'd written and that you looked at. And there was a line at the end of a chapter, and it for me it was a throwaway line uh, because I it was a placeholder like maybe I'll be able to use this as a way of – tying everything back together at the end. And your comment on that was you had better deliver on this if you're going to leave it in there, because if you don't, <laughs> the readers are going to be pissed. I don't think I said it quite like that. <laughs> that's, that's the way I heard it. You were probably very nice about it. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you pointed it out and I left it in until I was about three quarters of the way through the, through the story. And I realized that's not happening, so I raced back and plucked that line out so that it didn't accidentally wind its work its way into the next version that you saw, so then you could really give it to me. Right. But that was, that was a clumsy, 
obvious way, and it was a combination of two things. One was I thought it might work, and I thought there might be a clever way of tying it in, and it was sort of a placeholder for me. But it was also a great place to have something like that at the end of a chapter to get someone to turn the page, and it just didn't work. It was not it – wasn't, it wasn't good. It was a poor use of foreshadowing. Well, it was also a first draft. So, you know, there's a lot of forgiveness in first drafts. It would have been a poor use of foreshadowing if it had stayed in the final product and didn't and didn't deliver at all. You, you really don't want to foreshadow something big and then have it fizzle where there's just it's, it's just there. Uh, yeah, it will really disappoint your readers. I also wanted to say that um, foreshadowing can also be used um like uh, in a reverse, a reverse form of foreshadowing. Uh, I, I, this comes to mind because I recently had some material that someone was looking over for me and they came away from it disappointed because they had expected one thing to happen and something else had happened. And until I had gotten that feedback, it, it had never dawned on me that the something else would have been expected. And so for me, barring a complete rewrite of the book or material or short story, whatever it is, um, is to go back and reverse foreshadow, knowing that there's a, a specific thing that someone might expect to happen and be disappointed when it doesn't, I will go back into this piece and set up a negative expectation so that the idea that this thing could happen will never enter the reader's mind toward the end because it had already been negated as a possibility. So you use the reverse foreshadowing technique as a way of fixing a story problem. As a way, well, in my mind, the story was fine. I, I didn't even realize that there was this potential issue until it was brought up to me. And it has to do with reader expectation. The story in this piece was already complete. The, there were no holes. It was that a reader expected it to go in a different direction than the story went. And that creates disappointment. So it's not so much that I'm using reverse foreshadowing to fix a story problem, I'm using reverse foreshadowing to head off potential disappointment for the story not going in that way. And that is as opposed to story not going in the direction they expected as opposed to a plot twist that could be thrilling near the end of a book. Exactly. So in this particular case, one... The, this person was more invested in one aspect of the story, but the story took a turn toward the end that the investment was misplaced. Um, not because there was anything wrong with the person who was looking it over and not because there was anything wrong with the story, but because there were so many different moving parts. So the investment could have gone in, in multiple directions. And so my reverse foreshadowing going back in is to make sure that 
nobody puts that emotional investment in a direction that I know now is not going to happen. Don't invest yourself there. Look over this other way because this is the way that things are going to go. Hmm. Okay, interesting. And I hope that we have delivered on my initial clumsy foreshadowing attempt at the beginning when I said we were going to have an interesting show that would be useful. I, I hope we have delivered on that. Um, call to action this week is something that we rarely do. We as in I rarely do. But I – Taylor, did you know I had another podcast? Yes, Steve. I tell people <laughs> about your other podcast. It's even mentioned on my Patreon page. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I knew you did. And you linked to it. So thank you. But I got an email from someone who listens to The Author Biz, which you can find at theauthorbiz.com. And this author said that she listens to both podcasts and she found out about our show from listening to The Author Biz. But she said, you need to cross-promote more. So this is me cross-promoting a little bit more. If you're an author and you're interested in the business of being an author, check out The Author Biz at theauthorbiz.com, and I will do this same cross-promotion from The Author Biz. So if you listen to both, keep me accountable. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's show really is good. Um, you guys might not know this because Steve doesn't, really talk about it, but he puts a lot of time and effort into bringing the best that he possibly can bring to the table. And he deserves far more credit than he gets for the quality of what he's producing. And there's so much value in his show, especially if you are looking to publish independently, because he brings in so many, so many, um, people to interview like in this show it's mostly him and me talking and we are batting around story problems and writer issues but on the author biz it is experts and people who've succeeded or who have knowledge about a particular aspect of the business of publishing that he brings onto the show so he's interviewing new guests constantly and it's definitely worth your time so thank you for that commercial, Taylor. Again, that's theauthorbiz.com if I didn't say it often enough. So thank you all for listening. Be with you guys next week.